Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Chapter 13. Nicholas Flamel. Dumbledore had convinced Harry not to go looking for the Mirror of Erised again, and for the rest of the Christmas holidays, the invisibility cloak stayed folded at the bottom of his trunk. Harry wished he could forget what he'd seen in the mirror as easily. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Before we get started, we are very excited to tell you all that we have hired our first ever non-Ariana producer. His name is AJ. He's wonderful. You are going to hear his impact starting today. And we're just so excited to have him. So Matt, it is your turn to tell a story and the theme is anger. What have you got for us today? I had a little bit of trouble coming up with a story for this week and it made me reflect upon my relationship to anger. It was easy for me to identify public or political situations that stir anger in me. But I wanted to try to think about in my personal life where and how anger arises in me. 
what I ended up with was a story from my childhood and playing tackle football in my backyard. I was, I think, about seven or eight, and my older brother is five years older than me. So I was playing football with a bunch of 13 and 14-year-olds. There's a big kind of physical developmental difference between eight-year-olds and 13 and 14-year-olds. And so the rule was they were playing tackle football, but for Matthew, it's touch football. You don't tackle Matthew because he's smaller. There was one slightly like younger kid playing who was in between named Bruce. And we were playing and I got handed the ball by my brother's older friend, Dax. And I started running and Bruce came up to me and he grabbed me by the neck and threw me down and tackled me. I remember that like I was really hurt, not seriously injured, but I remember it hurt and I got up crying and all the other older kids kind of started getting mad, getting angry with Bruce, saying the rule was no tackle. Matthew's smaller. There's no tackling Matthew. And they started yelling at him. And I just remember feeling hurt. Like, I just remember my neck hurt. I wasn't really processing this affectively. I was processing it physiologically. And I remember these older kids, like, holding Bruce and saying, you got to hit him back. Hit him back. Matthew, hit him back. I didn't know what to do, right? And so I hit Bruce in the chest. I remember I reared back and I hit him in the chest. and then. They let go of Bruce and Bruce ran home. And the reason I tell that story is I don't know where anger was in that story. There was a jump from hurt to aggression, from hurt to the physical act of violence. It was like, okay, I got hurt. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe Bruce didn't understand the rules. Maybe he did understand the rules and he's 12 instead of 14. And he's like, I don't need to treat him this way or I'm smaller too. How come I don't get this? Who knows what Bruce's rationale was? If there was even a rationale, all I know is that I was hurt and the jump was immediately to aggression. And I'm wondering, this is a question I have for you, Vanessa, and maybe for our listeners or for this book, is anger this affective emotional space between hurt and some outward act, which maybe in many cases is aggressive or violent, but maybe also doesn't need to be aggressive or violent. But anger is this sort of, it's where we start to process hurt, then that processing, that affective processing becomes some behavior in the world. What I want to think about with you is what is that leap from hurt straight to aggression and where was anger in it? And what role does anger play in helping us process hurt so we can reflect upon what our next best actions might be? But Matt, you said that you're curious as to where the anger was, but wasn't the anger that all of these kids had watched this younger boy that they care about get hurt and that their rules weren't respected? Yeah, I think that's possible, right? I think maybe anger is the emotional or affective response of the ally of the person who's hurt. Like the person who's hurt is busy hurting, right? And it's the responsibility of others around that person to sort of have their anger and react to it and decide what they want to do with it. Because we don't just get angry when we get hurt ourselves. I mean, I began this story talking about how I can think of a lot of examples of anger because of public or political situations, right? The examples of anger that came most readily to my mind were ones where I was angry on behalf of others who were hurt. So I think that your question actually draws out that really importantly. And maybe it gives a clue as to why it was easier for me to come up with those examples than the personal ones. Yeah, I also think that another reason that I can imagine these boys getting angry is that sometimes something that can really set off anger is feeling like you can't control a situation that you feel like you should be able to control. And so it's like, hey, we set up a rule, no tackling Matt. And they felt as though that was something that they should have been able to control and that rule was violated. Realizing that you can't control something that you want to control can really piss you off. 
Oh, yeah. Remember the Dursleys at the beginning of this book? We talked about how right. like that's the thing that inspired their anger more than anything else was when they lost control, right? Okay. Well, it's my turn to start our 30-second recap. Do you want to count me in? I'd love to count you in, Vanessa. Great. <laughs> Three, two, one, <laughs> go. So Hermione comes back and is like, I can't believe that you have the invisibility cloak and you didn't figure out who Nicholas Flamel was. And turns out that Snape is going to coach the uh, referee the last Quidditch match. And Hermione and Ron are like, you should pretend to be dead so you don't have to play. And then Neville comes and he's been bullied, lead locker curse. Harry gives him a chocolate frog and they go, that's who Nicholas Flamel was. He has, he invented the Sorcerer's Stone and then Harry catches the snitch and Gryffindor wins and um, Harry hears Quirrell and Snape have a conversation. That wasn't very good, Matt. Really? Now that makes me feel bad because if I had done that, I would think I just did an excellent job and you're, I'm hoping to do as well as you just did. Okay. Well, I hope better for you than that. Three Two, one, go. So Harry does not see the mirror of Eris head again, but he can't stop thinking about it. And Hermione comes back and they still don't know who Nicholas Flamel is. And um, they find out that Snape is going to be refereeing. And they're like, oh, my gosh, should should Harry play or should he not play? Harry says he should play. And then uh, Neville is bullied and, and Harry gives him a chocolate frog and says, you're worth 12 of Malfoy. And then the chocolate frog is Dumbledore and they figure out who Nicholas Flamel is. And they and Harry does great. And the snitch is all caught quicker than ever. And then it's a big celebration. They go out and then Harry's goes out in the forest and sees Snape challenging Quirrell, and that's 30 seconds. The thing I was trying to get to, I didn't get to, which was one of my favorite moments in this chapter is when Harry is just kind of wandering around on his broom after all the celebrations have ended. His kind of decompression moment, and you're kind of in his head just before he sees Snape running into the Forbidden Forest and follows him. There's just something really quiet and nice and sweet about that moment. And that's the thing I wanted to get to in my 30 seconds. And instead, I cheated our listeners and talked for two more minutes about it after my 30 seconds I did just now. Um, So Matt, the thing that you and I both missed in our 30 second recap is a really interesting place to me on this theme of anger, which is the fight that happens in the stands. And it's between Malfoy, Crabbe and Goyle and Ron and Neville. And first of all, just like aggression and violence at sporting games is a very interesting phenomenon to me in general. But the specificity of this is I think about a previous hurt. So at the beginning of the chapter, Draco puts a leg-locking bind on Neville, and Neville has to hop into the Gryffindor common room, and everybody laughs except Hermione, which means that even Ron and Harry laugh, right? And, like, that is humiliating. And so when Draco starts picking on Neville and Ron again, I feel like this delayed anger over the humiliation of the leg-locking bind and then the Gryffindor's response to it comes out with Neville's genuine rage. And this is a moment where I think anger is unproductive because, and I do think that there are moments where anger is really productive, but his anger outweighs his safety. Like he could get really injured trying to fight two kids who are bigger than him. And I'm wondering if you saw it anger in this scene? And if so, where? But to me, the real anger, the righteous fury is Neville's. I'm not sure that Neville feels that. Honestly, in my reading, I I think he does feel humiliated, right? Which is why the response that Harry gives is, you don't need to be humiliated. 
do not feel shame. You're great. We want you. We would rather have you than 12 Malfoys. What he needs in that moment is not to feel angry, it's to feel valued, right? And his response in the moment of being devalued by Malfoy again is not to turn around and say, I'm angry at you, Malfoy. It's to say, nope, I'm going to value myself. I'm going to reiterate the thing that I heard, which is I'm worth 12 of you. And it's not also not clear to me that his fighting Crab and Goyle isn't imitative of Ron. Ron turns around and starts fighting first, right? And so maybe he's like, okay, this is what we do. Now we're into it. I'm loyal to Ron, whatever. So is his aggression coming out as righteous anger? Or is the thing that he needs is to feel like I'm valuable. I should not feel shame. I should not feel humiliated. Or I don't need to feel ashamed and humiliated. And this is really interesting because especially as, the, as you talk about anger being productive. There's an English early modern philosopher named Joseph Butler. And one of the things he says is that anger can be useful or unuseful, that anger is not good or bad, or rather anger is good when it's useful and bad when it's unuseful, right? When it's productive of some other good. Some philosophers would say like, oh, it's just bad to be angry. Anger is a bad emotion. He's like, no, anger is not a bad emotion. Actually, we need anger because anger indicates to us self-worth, self-respect. You get angry when you have been violated in some way. So I think your introduction of those kinds of ideas of like how anger relates to self-esteem or self-worth, whether or not it's productive or unproductive, those are really important kind of frames through which to think about anger in general and also about what's happening in this chapter. But for Neville, I've, I'm still not sure anger is the emotion that's operating. I think you're right. I think at first it's shame and then it's appreciation or admiration or gratitude to Harry for doing that. Right. And then in the second instance, when he turns around and says, I'm worth 12 of you, I don't think that's an angry statement. That's like a self-confidence statement. That's like trying to convince himself. It's conviction. Like I'm trying to convince myself that this is true. And then when the fight starts, I feel like your friends get into a fight. You just start fighting. Right. I'm not sure that's I'm angry. Therefore, I'm fighting. I think it's Ron's fighting. Therefore, I'm fighting. Right. So I don't know if anger is there. If it is, the question of productivity is really important. A and second. I do maybe want to push. I'm a pacifist, right? We know this, but I do want to push on whether or not what happens at the end of this chapter with this fight is productive or unproductive. You think it's productive? I think potentially, I think it carries some risks, as you say, but often things that are productive carry risks, right? Sure. Productive how? I think, although I'm not sure it was Neville's own angry instinct to fight, I think it probably built relationship between him and Ron and between him and the other Gryffindors, I think it made him believe some of the things that he was saying when he said, I'm worth 12 of you, because he was as brave as Gryffindors are supposed to be, because he took on two of the biggest guys at the school. I believe in non-retaliation, but I also think that there's a categorical difference between, like, deadly violence and 11-year-olds in a fight, right? <laughs> like, and so... I mean, I'm not sure he makes the stand against Harry and Ron. He does at the end of this book. If he hadn't already taken a stand with Ron against Crabbe and Goyle at this moment. I mean, what do you think about that? I think one of the easiest ways to make people angry is to humiliate them. And I think that Neville in this chapter gets humiliated at least twice. And yeah, I guess I see a lot of anger with these boys, right? Like Draco is mad that Harry is on the team and Ron is mad that he's poor and that Draco is constantly bringing it up. And Neville is mad that Draco humiliated him. And so I just see so much bubbling anger that this fight isn't necessarily explicitly about. But I guess whether or not I think Neville is angry, I think that this kid has a lot to be angry about right? Like he is someone who was abused throughout his childhood and then was finally revealed to actually be a wizard. And 
now that he's in school, he's still being treated like he's barely a wizard and is less than. And then he gets sorted into Gryffindor and he's constantly being made to feel that he's not actually brave enough to be in Gryffindor. And his parents were taken from him through torture. And so I just am imagining like a sacred imagination of Neville as angry and is constantly turning that anger into something productive and is experimenting with how how to manage that anger with gratitude to Hermione and then with loyalty to Ron and and standing up to Harry, Ron and Hermione at the end of the book. But I see him as at minimum having a lot of reason for anger in his life and as somebody who really figures out a way to do that productively. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like, yeah, absolutely. He's got as much reason for anger as anybody. I mean, like a good way to read what is not rendered in this chapter. Like, we don't know what Neville's feeling. Like, I've been speculating about, like, what's going on internally to him in this moment when he starts fighting. Is later on in the book, we do know Neville does feel anger. We know that he acts out of anger, although for the good out of anger, right? And so we could read those character traits back onto the situation. We might say that, yeah, that's it's anger going on now. Just reflecting while you're talking and thinking about why I want so carefully to parse out anger is because I'm really, really interested in the link between affect and behavior. I'm really, really interested in like how what we feel relates to what we do. And what I see in, from my own tradition in Christianity has been a lot of stigmatization of anger, which is actually misplaced because of our moral concerns around the use of violence. Because anger tends to make you want to commit an act of violence, and because we in Christianity, many of us like discourage the use of violence, that ends up with us telling people who feel justified angry that they ought not to feel anger. We end up policing emotion when what we should be doing is policing behavior and honoring emotion because the emotion is a signal as to the fact that someone's been shamed or hurt or humiliated, and that's what we need to be paying attention to, right? And so the, the reason why I really want to like, I think hone in on these categories, especially around anger, is because, because I want to justify it, because I want to say like, yes, you can feel it, and it's important to feel it, and it serves an important role in coming to the right kind of moral decision about how you're going to act in the world, which is, you're right, what Neville does every time. Yeah, I, I mean, like, I'm just super pro-anger. I'm not pro-people acting out of anger without consideration. Like Snape, for example, right? Snape looks angry as he walks onto the pitch. And the kids read that as he's angry that, you know, Gryffindor is going to win or he's about to be super unfair. It could be that Snape is angry because he knows that Quidditch is really dangerous right now, that Quirrell tried to kill Harry and that, like, Dumbledore is letting this happen and that Snape is letting his anger make sure that he's, like, being vigilant and watching this game. I think that if it is true that Snape is angry in this chapter, that he uses it really productively. The person who uses anger most unproductively in this chapter, not surprisingly, is Draco, right? Like Draco's angry that he's not playing and that Harry is. And so he's just bullying. He's just like walking around trying to piss other people off in an attempt to make himself feel better. But other than that, I think us getting frustrated with each other and us getting angry at each other is just a completely, like, reasonable thing in the world. Yeah, I think that is the right, the right distinction between good and bad anger, 
productive and unproductive anger, right? I think this example from of Snape is really interesting because I don't know that Snape's angry. I think that, again, I think sure. because anger is so closely tied with aggression, with expressed aggression, the fact that he has an aggressive facial expression might mean vigilance, might mean protectiveness, might mean alertness, whatever. And everyone just is reading an affect onto what is outwardly an aggressive posture. That's really what I care about in talking about anger is you're right. I think in so many cases, anger is justified and it's important for us to recognize why it's justified. What I worry about is when anger becomes a blanket justification for all sorts of unjustifiable actions. Totally. And that's where it gets really messy. And, you know, I think because I feel anger, therefore I'm justified to act the way I want to, the way I feel like I ought to, which is with violence or aggression, that kind of thing. That's that's where I really want to slow way down and say like, okay, okay, what actions actually are justified here? The feeling, absolutely justified. And some actions, maybe right. even risky ones that might entail some aggression, like the ones at the end of this chapter, maybe those are even justified or we can see some good in them, right? But I want to put the speed bump between the two things or to create a little separation between the two so that we can ask the question of justification at the right moment, not whether you feel it. Because if you feel it, then we need to ask questions. Anybody who feels anger, but we need to know why. Like, why do you feel anger? That's an important affect. The justification question is not whether you're entitled to your feeling. It's what does your feeling entitle you to? And the way you're talking about it, Vanessa, really, really calls us to, again, ask that question at the right moment. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason... You can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Well, and the other thing about anger that I think is so troubling is that it seems as though any expression of anger, productive or unproductive, is only accessible to the privileged, right? Mm -hmm. If you are seen as an angry black person, you are seen as dangerous. And as a woman, if you get angry, you're seen as hysterical or shrill, right? So there isn't just the anger and the action. There's also the performance of the emotion when you are in the processing moment that I find interesting, right? So Hermione, like, we don't see it, but she's... I wouldn't use the word angry, but she's like annoyed, a cousin of anger, uh, that they didn't use the invisibility cloak to do more research about Nicholas Flamel. And like she can't overly express that anger because as a woman, she would be seen as a nag. Whereas there are certain forms of anger, like 12-year-old white boys fighting, that is seen as socially acceptable, where that anger would not be seen as productive, right? It would get punished totally different if those were boys of color, right? And like, we know this from studies about who gets suspended and expelled from schools. And so that's the other thing about anger is that we know as soon as we feel the feeling of anger that we have to either hide it in certain ways or perform it in certain ways because otherwise it's going to be regulated. So I even think that like being able to express anger without thinking about how it's going to be seen by others is a privilege, which shows why Draco is someone who doesn't need to have any control over his anger. He can just like go around and bully and attack. And he has never been worried about how he will be perceived because of that. Yeah, it's not only that when anger is expressed by marginalized communities, it's diminished or interpreted as other kinds of behaviors, it's also that it's just ignored, right? Like, after the Charleston shooting, when some of the surviving families offered forgiveness to the shooter, Dylan Ruth, at Ruth's arraignment, all the news stories afterwards were that a couple of them said, I forgive you. What many of them also said is, I am very angry. I will always be angry. Even some of the people who forgave him said, I am angry. And the, the narrative of Black justified Black anger was not what was the headline the next day. In, in newspapers, right? It was, oh, black people forgive, right? Like that's because that's a headline that is the one that maybe America is more excited to read than black people justifiably angry, right? It's just a refusal to see anger even when expressed in this very public setting and, and voiced explicitly. We do not want to see this because it would mean that you have a reason to be angry and that maybe we have something to do about that. Matt, I want to talk quickly about this conversation between Snape and Quirrell because Snape seems to be weaponizing his anger, right? He does this thing that I hate when people do, which is like, you don't want to see me mad. It's just such a gross, vague, open threat 
of trying to manipulate somebody else's behavior through a threat that like you would be making me have an, an emotion and then I wouldn't be able to control myself. And the kids, right, like Harry thinks it'll work. Harry is like, oh, Quirrell's definitely going to break in front of Snape because who would be able to stand up to Snape's rage? And so there's this feeling with Snape's anger that he uses it as a weapon and that it is an effective weapon. I don't know that Snape's angry at the end of this chapter. Is Snape angry at the end of this chapter? I, I feel like the, I'm a I'm I broken record. I think he's performing anger. I think he's expressing power. I think Snape's a powerful wizard. Again, like I don't, I want to kind of cut this tie between aggression and anger. Like anger is something you feel, aggression is something you do. And Snape is going in there saying like, I am powerful. I know you're up to no good. I'm aware of what you, or something of what you're up to. And you're going to have to deal with, with me. I, th- I think that that's slightly different than expressing anger. I think that assertion of kind of a stance of power or taking an aggressive posture against someone is not necessarily angry. It can be just something else. And again, for me, I think preserving this distinction is really important because acts and postures of aggression are things that we can think about morally, right? Is it right or wrong? Whereas feelings are things we think about pastorally or therapeutically. Like, why do you have that feeling? And what can I do to help you deal with that feeling, right? And in our own lives, like when I feel anger, I have to ask myself two questions, right? Like, why am I feeling this? Where is this coming from? What is the source of that feeling? And that leads to the second question is, okay, then what do I do about it? Which then becomes less a therapeutic or pastoral question and more a moral or behavioral question, right? And so with Snape in this moment, the question I want to ask is like, okay, why is he taking this posture towards Quirrell? What is the action he's going to take? How do I frame and consider that posture or that action? Whereas his feeling, like, I'm like, you you got your feelings. Like, feel your feelings, whatever they are. And then we can think about why you have them and what actions they should inspire. Yeah, and that is what the kids don't trust about Snape's anger, right? They feel as though Snape is angry all the time. And that is a man who cannot control his anger. And therefore, not only should Harry do everything he can to not play in the Quidditch game, right? I mean, Ron's joking, but he's like, break your leg. Like, literally make it impossible for you to play because they are so afraid of Snape's immaturity and ability to control his own anger. They're like, this is an angry man who doesn't like you and who has no self-control. And they are wrong (laughs) um, in the particulars. But I mean, to some extent, they're not wrong. And I think that I don't know. I've just been in so many situations where I have watched bigger men, like men who are bigger than I am, get mad at me and have gotten scared about the aggression, have gotten scared about the fact that I don't trust their ability to pause and choose action or pause and reflect. Why is this, you know, woman pissing me off so much? What is it about her and what is it about me? And instead just act. And so as much as I think anger is a wonderful thing and that we need to follow it to its roots and really question it, that that anger to aggression jump that I think particularly, again, people of privilege have never had to investigate when anger becomes aggression, have never had to think about interrupting that. It's so terrifying. It is so scary to me to be confronted 
right? I mean, like with an angry white man. And I think that it's exactly what you're saying, right? Is like there isn't that pause between the affect and the action. It's to them, the feeling is the justification of the action. And that is how the kids read Snape, that he is one of those angry white men. And luckily they're, they're wrong. He is actually somebody with an incredible amount of discipline between feeling and action. But it's a fair fear that they have of him. But also kind of right. I mean, he gets his digs in on Harry when he can for this like unjustified resentment. Yeah, which I know is what you're saying, right? They're wrong, but they're also right. Because Snape also feels entitled to misuse and abuse Harry and Gryffindors or whatever, like uh, all the time, just because of this lingering anger over like the fact that he was bullied as a... As a child, which is a real thing, and that's a real anger. But I think, again, like, that's the gap we need to insist upon, especially for, you're right, it's a masculinity and it's a race issue, right? Like, I think human beings feel anger, whether justified or not, like, whether they ought to or not. And I think white men, especially if we're going to invite them to to give up their privilege, are going to feel some anger. And they, we just have to respect right. that they're going to be angry about that. But what's important is that, like, that's that's, whether it's good or bad, it's just a feeling. It comes, right? The question then is like, okay, how are you going to divorce that feeling from the aggression that you think you're entitled to when you feel it, right? It, right. Like, it doesn't seem like there's a, politically and practically, there's no way for people to give up power unless the feeling of anger is divorced from the actions that that anger is too often linked to. Like, I'm not sure how you get folks to give up power safely. Yeah. And, you know, Snape is someone who is going to have misplaced anger his whole life, but is, for the most part, going to separate that anger from aggression, right? He he has all this misplaced anger, but he he does, in a lot of ways, attempt to do good by it, right? He fails, but he he tries. Snape's anger is very interesting to me. And like whether or not he is successful at doing this thing that you were calling us to of stopping and saying, okay, what am I going to do? What action am I going to do in response to my anger? He's super successful in some ways of managing that anger and then incredibly, you know, horrible (laughs) in other ways. I mean, he succeeds in all the in all the big ways and like fails in all the in all the small ways, right? Like the day to day interactions with children, he fails miserably. The huge big scale actions, he he's he's loyal to the values that he should be loyal to. Yeah. So Matt, we are going to do Florilegia where we each will bring a sparklet and we will put these sparklets in conversation with one another. The sparklet that I brought is, do you want the card? You collect them, don't you? What is the sparklet that you brought, Matt? The sparklet that I bring today is Snape spat bitterly on the ground. That really struck me too. So I'm excited. Okay. Yeah. 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 So now tell me where this is in the chapter and why it sparkled up at you. So this is just after Harry grabs a snitch in the fastest recorded time and Gryffindor wins the Quidditch match. Woo! And everyone's celebrating and Dumbledore is, you know, patting Harry on the shoulder and and Snape spits bitterly upon the ground. And I think I like it just because of the contrast of, you know, like the, all the energy in the scene is around the celebration for the Gryffindors. 
And it's also Snape living up to everything that these characters would expect of him to be bitter about the fact that Gryffindor won and that Harry caused Gryffindor to win. And there is something just very expressive about it, right? This is just good writing, show, don't tell, right? He didn't say Snape was angry. It says Snape spat bitterly on the ground, except that bitterly is telling more than it's showing, right? Because why is he spitting on the ground? Is he bitter? Like, what's what's going on? Like, there is a little... So it's just an interesting line. It's very expressive and illustrative, but it's also, there's some mystery behind it. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, maybe he got mud in his mouth. We don't know. This could be a practical spitting. That's right. Well, I picked my favorite moment, essentially, which is Harry gives Neville a chocolate frog, his last chocolate frog, which I just think is like, it's very sweet. It's very kind. And then Neville allows himself to receive the gift, right? He doesn't do the thing where he's like, no, no, it's your last one. I don't deserve it, right? Like he receives the gift, but then he... He, A, gives something back. There's like a reciprocity element to it. And the you collect them, don't you? I don't get the sense that like Harry has talked about collecting these cards, but it's like something that maybe Neville has observed because they're roommates. And I just think it's very sweet that Neville has observed that. And I don't know. It's just like this beautiful moment of like gift giving and seeing each other and reciprocity and... I I find it very touching. (laughs) Let's put them together. Okay, so do you want the card? You collect them, don't you? Snape spat bitterly on the ground. Whoa. It's like Snape's like, no, I don't collect these cards. Toy, who would do that? Idiots. There's also something about like, Snape is so alone. He's such a loner. He's been since the beginning. The appeal of Lily, it seems like, was at least partly just because she was friendly she was a friend and so there's something about the building of relationship like these two folks maybe harry being one of them cultivating community cultivating this relationship forgiving each other and giving to each other and not only does snape not have a part of he resents the fact that he doesn't have a part of it and also doesn't know how to get it longs for it doesn't know how to get it so there's there's something that brings snape's loneliness into greater relief what do you think yeah you can't imagine snape doing either of these things, either Harry's part or Neville's part of like offering the last of a resource that he has or being like, well, you take this part, right? Like this is not the kind of like loving interaction that you could see them having. It's just striking me more and more how beautiful this interaction between Harry and Neville is. It's so sweet and childlike, you know, like innocent, of this, like, I have candy. Yeah. I also think, right, I, I know I've talked about this before, but, like, the sharing of food as a form of, like, intimacy is also a really beautiful thing. And, like, this is a really beautiful moment. Okay, well, should we read that? Do you want me to read it the other way? Yeah. Snape spat bitterly on the ground. Do you want the card? You collect them, don't you? Oh, my God. It's like he has so much contempt. <laughs> I know. Like, I don't even, uh this card... Do you want the card? You collect them, don't you? You collect them, don't you? All the losers collect these cards. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of hatred for chocolate frogs suddenly when you flip it around. Yeah. Or card collecting. Yeah. There's something about like 
coolness in this. There's something very earnest about collecting something. It's not something you do ironically. Like you collect something because you cherish it. And so Snape is like putting that into relief of like, how silly is it for you to care about something like this? So you get the sense from this that like Snape would never collect anything. Like he's too cool. He's too isolated. He's too removed. He would never like stoop to doing something like this. Well, not just that. He's like, it's too frivolous. Right. For Snape, it's all everything's very serious, right? He doesn't have a sense of humor. Even his devotion to Lily is is wholehearted to a fault. His loyalty to Dumbledore is is absolute. Like he just there's no whimsy in Snape. That kind of goes without saying, right? And these chocolate frogs are whimsical, right? It's a chocolate frog and these collecting and these these wizard collecting cards, right? And and also like maybe a window into why Snape's ultimate relationship with Lily was such a catastrophic failure, right? Because everything was so serious. Everything was absolute. Like everything was about absolute and utter loyalty to me or to him or to whatever. And it couldn't just be about sharing a, a, a laugh or a moment of joy or, or a chocolate, right? Like it had to be all or nothing. And that really made it be nothing, right? It couldn't, it couldn't just be a, a friendship built on smaller things. But those small things are the things that that hold friendships together, as we see between Neville and Harry Thing. As you keep pointing out, like Harry actually just did a kind of big thing. He laughed at Neville, and then he did a kind of small thing, and Neville did a kind of small thing in return. And that is actually the thing that shores up the relationship and makes them friends. Yeah. This week's voicemail is from Aiden. Hello, Vanessa, Matt, and the Sacred Text team. We're about to embark on a journey following a boarding school experience in which a shocking number of students died. Cedric Diggory, Moaning Myrtle, and any number of Hogwarts ghosts left their home and never made it back. And in the year 1996, Hogwarts became a compulsory component of a genocidal government program. The last of Canada's Indian residential schools shut down in 1996. As I am speaking in the last month, 315 unmarked graves were unearthed at the site of a residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia, and 751 unmarked graves were unearthed at the site of a residential school in the Cowessis First Nation in Saskatchewan. I would like to leave a blessing for the nameless ones who left their home to go to school and never made it back, and a blessing for the survivors who were torn from their families to attend a school populated by the ghosts of former students. Aiden, thank you so much for helping us remember these children who were lost and whose lives were forever changed by this experience of these schools and the atrocities. After our voicemails, we have been setting aside a time to remember the names of the friends and loved ones of our community who were lost to COVID. And this is probably just a good time to mention that we are going to expand the scope of that. We would like to be remembering members of our community who were lost for any reason. And so if you would like to submit the name of somebody for us to read their name aloud on an episode, go to harrypottersacredtext.com. And Aiden, thank you so much for leading the way and helping us remember those who need to be remembered. And now we'll transition to saying the names of those in our community who lost someone due to COVID. 
Paul Pratt, a young man in his 60s, a spiritual seeker and guide. Joseph DeMuise, who was 82, a grandfather and a good friend to many. Antoine Hodge, who was 38, an opera singer who had a voice like velvet. Ethel Young, who was 84, a wonderful and beloved great aunt. Petra Madrigal, who is 89 and almost 90, a beloved wife, mom, grandma, and great-grandma. And Robert Green, who was 75 and who dressed as Gandalf for fair. It's now time to talk about our blessings for the week. Who are you blessing this week, Vanessa? I mean, it's got to be Neville. He's just like heard something that means something to him, which is that he's worth 12 of Malfoy. And he loves it. And you can tell he doesn't totally believe it. But he is going to integrate this into his story as soon as possible. And just like takes this good piece of feedback and uses it immediately. I mean, the moment where he just looks right at Malfoy and goes, I'm worth 12 of you. No matter how many times I read it, I want to cheer every time. I'm like, yeah, you are. So I just want to bless Neville for like finding his voice and a moment of confidence. And I wish that for everyone in the world to turn around and And take a compliment that someone gave you in and, like, express it out into the world. I think that's beautiful. What about you, Matt? Who do you want to bless? Vanessa, this week, I'm going to bless Malfoy. There's no reason for it. I think I'm angry at him. I think he's obviously in the wrong here. This is not to justify any of his actions or to condone. I feel like I need to say that because I don't want to confuse blessing with condoning or justification, right? But, you know, not to get too preachy, love your enemies and bless those that curse you. Literally in this chapter. He's casting curses, and I just want to bless him. So next week for Chapter 14, Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback, Jackson Bird is going to be joining us, and he's going to pick a theme. We don't know it yet, but we are very excited to be joined by Jackson. Maybe the theme is mystery. (gasps) Maybe it's unknowing. The unknown. (gasps) Maybe this is a meta theme, and we are meant not to know. It's the unknown. Oh, my gosh. Jackson is amazing, so I wouldn't put it past him. You've been listening to Harry Potter on the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. You can join our local groups and come join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Send us a voicemail with a blessing. And we are a Not Sorry production. Executive produced by Ariana Nettleman. And our producer and editor is AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. We send deep, deep gratitude to Aiden this week for calling us to remembrance into mourning. Also, thanks to Molly Baxter, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones lost to COVID. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you next week.
sorry, I had the desire to count you in to counting me in. Be like, oh. okay, Matt, and count me in in three. Okay, do you want to? Do two, you want to? Why don't you one. count? Okay, three. You count me in, and I'll count you in. <laughs> this week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.